The earth was small, light blue and so touchingly alone. A home that must be defended like a holy relic. I believe I never knew what the word round meant until I saw earth from space. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. Do, 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 do. Oh, yeah, baby, Alexei Leonov. Didn't know what the word meant. <laughs> hey. Boom, Jamie, we're I in the same room. Tell you what, this is exciting. Not only are we in the same room, but I'm in your new house in North Devon. Oui. It's so beautiful. Oh, oui. North Devon. No wonder Devon. you're so zen these days. Oh, with yeah, this absolutely super Almost zen. Lord of the Rings style coast you have here. I know, it's beautiful, isn't it? So beautiful. I had fish and chips on the beach. Uh, was discussing about what the formation of the rocks were, and now I'm talking about space. Yeah, do you know what? I've, I'm, 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 I might become an artist, and my idea for for my art is I'm going to draw planetary scenes, but based on the Ilfracum landscape. So, for example, I might do one with Titan, and 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 the sea will become a methane sea. And the rocks will be hewn out of ice. Well, you know I'll be your first customer. Please sign the corner. Thank yeah. you, please. And in the background will be Saturn and its rings. Ooh. Now you're talking. Yeah, and I'll be selling them in the local Ilfracombe shops. Well, i tell you what, you've put it on the map. Yeah, absolutely. So what are we going to talk about today? Jamie, you know you know our, our podcast about animals in space. I know. And, it. The, and the horror. Don't tell me another dead animal please. well no it, well it's the 60th anniversary today 60th anniversary today that the first mammal ever to enter space beyond the carmen line well albert two albert two albert de oh. yeah albert two our little rhesus monkey yep aboard the v2 rocket yep how far did he go well i think it was 83 miles wasn't it 134 kilometers for yep. our uh more Learned friends out there. Poor Albert died on impact after a parachute failure. Yeah, no chance of survival. Splatteroonie. But at least he's not one of those frozen <laughs> frozen monkeys in p- perpetual orbit. Yeah, that's true. Um, so, you know what we're going to do tonight? We're going to raise a glass to little Albert too. I think maybe it would... What should we have? Some monkey gin, I believe, <laughs> uh, hailing from Berlin. Uh, absolutely. Now, listeners, if you do hear some rumbling in the background, that's because although it's my new house, it's still being <laughs> there's still workmen here. Yeah, a bit of contexture for you. Yeah, yes, yes. Uh, talking of um, contexture, contexture. That's not right. Context. <laughs> it's just context. Context. Yeah. Talking of context, Jamie, have you seen the news articles about the mysterious mass? beneath a large crater on the far side of the moon. I did read about this. Do you want to elaborate a bit more? Well, yeah, apparently some researchers, this guy called Peter James and his and his um lovely colleagues from Baylor University in Texas. Uh-huh. They basically realized using the data from Grail, the Gravity Recovery and Interior Laboratory mission from NASA, that there was this huge massive lump under the crater just beneath the moon's surface. Um, and it seems to go down 180 miles. And this is what one of them said. He said, 
Imagine taking a pile of metal five times larger than the big island of Hawaii and burying it underground. That's roughly how much unexpected mass we detected. That is a lot. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, a, a, a bunch, a massive metal piece, five times bigger than the Hawaii's biggest island buried under the surface. Um, yeah. What what do they think it's made of, Matt? Well, well, I think it's metal of some description, but yeah. it's it's how it got there. This is the mystery, and it could be whatever made the crater. It might be what was left of that crater. It might be the 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 actual asteroid itself that's wow. just under the surface. But normally, I think what would happen with those kind of asteroids is they hit, and they basically flow down to the core of the planet because they're so heavy, so they would melt down. And so it's very unusual that that would happen, but it could be that. And this is one of the reasons, of course, why people are pretty excited about mining some of these places. Am I oh, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. I suppose you, that would be a very rich metal deposit on the moon right Very there. rich, very indeed. Rich. And, and it would make, make somebody rich. very rich. I know that. But, but you would also have to be very rich to mine it, Matt. Yeah. Of course. Well, it's 2.18 times 10 to the 18 kilograms. It's my kind of maths. That is a million, 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 million. No, it's a million, million, million. <laughs> it's a lot. Stop it's saying million. It's, really, it's, a, it's very, millions and millions and millions and millions of kilograms right there. And yeah, it could be that when with the impact, when the, the core was cooling down, it might have been a sort of bubble that came to the surface of molten metal, I suppose. Mm. There's, there's other explanations for it. But an interesting one is, yes, it is actually the asteroid itself that's that's lodged underneath the surface and hasn't, for some reason, dripped down into the core of the moon itself. Wow, I absolutely love that. Well, more info from data coming soon. There's been lots of news about Artemis, which I think is deeply worrying. A bit. So one of the senators, uh, a Republican senator for Alabama, Mo Brooks. Mo Brooks. Pressed Thomas uh, Zerpikin, who's the NASA Associate Administrator for Science, for the total cost of the Artemis program uh, because fears are mounting that Artemis is going to rob the coffers of the NASA science program. Mm. So this is what he said. He says, we need to we need some idea of how much the cost is expected to be incurred over the next five years, or do we literally have no idea what we're getting into? There were some red faces, I'm assuming. Yeah, and no one really could answer his question, so it's a bit of a, a nightmare. That's awkward. But Jim Bridenstein has continually said that they're not going to cannibalise science programmes to pay for Artemis. But there has been some worrying sentences coming out from various other people at NASA mm. saying, well, we're either going to have to find amazing efficiencies somewhere or or we're going to have to get the money from somewhere because they're not going to find the $8 billion a year from government. Should we write them a cheque? Yeah, I mean, luckily our Patreons are giving us those sort of sums of money now. Well, so, the amount of people that buy T-shirts alone would cover that, wouldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. T-shirts, merch, mugs, et cetera, et cetera. All, of, all still available. <laughs> all still available. So <laughs> head to <laughs> interplanetary.org.uk. So our good friend Gurbir Singh must be very excited because um, India have set a launch date for the Chandrayaan 2 mission. Ooh, now we're talking. L July the 15th. Not long. 
Yep, going up on a GSL V Mark III. Um, takes several weeks to get there, but that is going to be a very, very exciting mission. Another country attempting a soft landing on the lunar surface. I've got a good feeling about this one. Uh, and you know what? Of all the marks, I think number three is the best. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, good is, luck to you. It's an, a steady improvement. India for the win. Go India. Uh, and go Britain as well. There's been a lot of uh, sh- uh, news up in the old Britain and what's and launch sites, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So the UK Space Agency have been um, approving money left, right, and centre. One for down in Cornwall for the Virgin Orbit. Not far away from where we are. Not very, not very far away from where we are at all. So yes, it's that um, they've approved money for that. But also they've started to announce new launch sites up in Scotland as well. Uh-huh. So, yes, so they'll be competing launch sites. And this one looks like it might be the first to actually open as well, Spaceport One. Is this anywhere near Forres? Uh, I'm not sure how near it is, but it's a different, it's a completely different project run by a different councils and stuff. Okay. Uh, so the Western Isles Local Authority and the Comher Nan Elian Shah. Uh, so that's completely separate, yeah, to the bids in Sutherland and in Shetland. Another of course, place I'm you, glad you pronounced it, not me. Yeah, so Shetland is another place where they, they're thinking of building a spaceport. So it's all watch go. Out, watch out, ponies. Yeah. We might even see a test launch by the end of the year, apparently, according to this report. £20 million is being made available for Spaceport Cornwall and the Virgin Orbit. So that's, like, pretty serious. Uh the UK Space Agency has also put in another £7 million to help UCL scientists build space weather equipment. Nice. So this is like mega, mega important. So this is in collaboration with America as well and uh, and other space agencies around the world. But the, one of the reasons why they're doing it is that was, there was a report out quite recently about what the cost would be to the UK if there was a Carrington-style event, and a solar flare, a one-in-a-hundred-year solar flare, which obviously they happen roughly one every hundred years. That's right. But you might have two in a hundred years. There might be one tomorrow. And if it does happen, guess how much they reckon it would cost the economy? Uh, $16 billion. Exactly right, Jamie. Sixteen billion. That is insane. So they reckon with a little bit of money, this seven million quid, we can. We're, basically, our fleet of space weather satellites is 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 actually getting Matt, a bit all old. What I'm saying is, buy cheap, buy twice. <laughs> exactly. Well, they reckon they can get the cost down to 0.9 of a billion if they have good space weather forecasting. Well, I'll take two. And the other news is that they're re-establishing the National Space Council. And that's going to be based around prosperity, knowledge, security, protection, and global influence. Oh, finally. I mean, it's about time, right? Uh, the US National Space Council, of course, was re-established in June 2017 for a very similar reason. And the Brits are doing exactly the same thing. Absolutely glorious. Glorious. Well, I wanted to, I've been wanting to speak about FRBs, Matt, for a while, but I... I did get a bit confused, didn't I? Yeah, you've, you've, I, well, what they I are did, confusing. What I did, listeners, was the classic trick of reading a magazine and then putting two articles together thinking it was one. <laughs> but that aside, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. very excited about fast radio bursts. Um, yeah. Because, Matt, they're a bit like birds, aren't they? What are birds? We just don't know. 
Well, I'll tell you what a fast radio burst is, Matt. Mm -hmm. It's a transient radio pulse of length ranging from a fraction of a millisecond to a few milliseconds caused by some high-energy astrophysical process not yet identified, so I hope you're taking notes. The source is so incredibly powerful that even though it's in from another galaxy, we still see it here. And it would be... <laughs> it's... What to put it into perspective of how amazing radio telescopes are on Earth, and particularly this Chime one that the mm. Canadians have built, is that yeah, that the energy arriving. Imagine you got your mobile phone on the moon, and you were using your mobile phone on the moon. The, the these radio detectors would be able to easily detect that, and and the actual energy coming from these fast radio bursts are thousands of times less than would be detected from your mobile phone if you were making a phone call on the moon, just to what? put that into perspective. Um, but they are trillions, in, in their own galaxy, they are trillions of times brighter than a pulsar. And a pulsar is already ridiculously bright, as in if you're anywhere near them, it's game over. So, yeah. yeah you don't want to go anywhere near there. Please. But because they're so short-lived, they hadn't been spotted until a chap called Duncan Lorimer assigned one of his undergraduate students, no less, a guy called David Narkevic, to look through archival data uh -huh. in 2001 by the Parks Radio Dish in Australia. And he found a 30 Jansky, and I'll, I'll explain what a Jansky is in a minute, right. dispersed burst which occurred on 24th of July 2001. So the first time we ever spotted one of these things is 2001. Wasn't that long ago. Not that long ago. And it was lasted five milliseconds and located somewhere in the region of the small megalanic cloud, although I think that's a bit of a red herring. Um but what's the really odd thing is when you re-look at that location, there's nothing there. So there's no optical, gamma, in infrared information whatsoever, mm. just nada. So it's something has happened, and then that's it. There's no other thing happening. It's not like something flaring up. It's pretty enigmatic. That's yeah, what we're so, saying. so it's super enigmatic. And just in case you're wondering what a Jansky is, it's named after Carl Guth Jansky, who discovered radio waves being admitted from emitted from the Milky Way in 1931. So a legendary uh, radio astronomer, and it's a non-SI unit of spectral flux density. Have you ever said that before? Matt? No, no, not 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 very often. And it's equivalent to 10 to the minus 6 watts per square meter per hertz. So that's the SI units of that thing. And it's often combined with steradians. So a steradian is a bit like a radian except in three dimensions. Yeah, megajanskis per steradian is a common is a common measurement and I like that. Do you like jansky as a unit? Oh, I'll tell you what, if there's one thing I love, it's Jansky, um, but not as much as spectral flux density, which is, uh, yeah, as you know, that beautiful. was how it's that's, beautiful. that's how I um, was successful in the world of Tinder yeah, by we, putting that in my profile. <laughs> well, we were talking on the Discord uh, thing about, oh, what was it, extra atmosphere multi-messenger satellites I mean, and, how, and what a kind of porn that was, yeah. science porn. Oh, I tell you totally. what, everyone needs to take a cold shower after <laughs> so this. So if you want to join us with our Discord science porn conversations, it's then... It's the kind of thing yeah. you're missing out on. Yeah, it's the kind of thing you're missing out. So in, in 2010, 
there was 16 similar pulses and everyone got a little bit excited. But do you know what they were? Go on. They were less like FRB and more like KFC. Because it was when you open, if you don't switch off your microwave and you just open the door, you know, sometimes you just open the door while it's going. Apparently that, that, that lets off a... Uh, a, a fast radio burst. Really? Well, it makes the telescopes nearby think there's been some fast radio burst. Yeah. So all these people not wanting to wake their their loved ones up by, the by getting to the dings. They're, they're, they're ruining local... Don't do it. <laughs> Just switch <laughs> well, it off for the plug. Well, I think nowadays they can tell the difference between them. Uh, but the big one is FRB 121102. And just so you know how FRBs are named, it's, it's year, month, day. So 12 wow. 11, 02, of course, is the 2nd of November, 2012. Uh, and the, the thing that was glory about this was in 2015, Paul Schultz of the McGill University found 10 non-periodical repeated fast radio bursts. So this was the first FRB that was a repeater. Now that is special. It can't be two pulsars colliding or something like no. that. It because that only happens once. It, it's not like they can sort of skim each other and keep it keep happening. So it's not. I actually think to myself, sure, there might be two reasons why there's FRBs. Maybe there's multiple things that cause FRBs. Mm. But this repeater is certainly making things more confusing. Um, and and that repeater's been seen a hundred and fifty times now, and they've. They're pretty certain they've tracked it to a dwarf galaxy three billion light years from Earth. Three billion light years. Yeah, that's fine. So just so to put that into perspective, this is all happening during the Cambrian explosion on Earth before we really had multicellular life on Earth, <laughs> way yeah, before the a, dinosaurs. That was a while ago. Yeah, so it, this is a long time ago. Before Instagram. And in every single fraction of a second that, that, that this radio burst flashes, that's enough power to power all of mankind for a trillion years. Yeah, we need to harness that power, Matt. How do we do that? <laughs> yeah, that, that is crazy, isn't it? Um, so what they have been able to do is find there's certain sort of physical aspects of this that show that it's embedded in a very strong magnetic field. Um, something to do with the way that the light is polarised as it goes through this uh -huh. magnetic field. And so that suggests that it comes from a neutron star that is either near a massive black hole or inside a highly magnetised supernova remnant, Ooh. right? So we're, we're honing in on what it could be. So in on this year, we actually we started this year with this story about on the 9th of January 2019, Chime, which is this weird Canadian radio telescope mm. that just basically looks like some discarded metal fencing in a field somewhere, uh, six bursts were detected. So that's the second ever repeater. So there's only two of these repeaters. Uh, but that kind of puts the end to the alien hypothesis, as we said at the time, uh, because, you know, it's highly unlikely that, in another galaxy somewhere that there's someone doing the same thing. Um, but it's really helping to kind of hone down what these things are. But what the hell are they? I've kind of listed them out here, Jamie. Well, they're in bold. Let's read them yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. So it could be a mega collision, like we just said. Uh, so uh, merging of black holes or neutron stars. Well, it also, Matt, could be aliens. You just, I'm just saying, throwing well, it out it's there. You never never, it's never aliens, oh, okay. but that is number two. Uh, number three, hyperflares or 
magnetars. Now, magnetars are a sort of pulsar that's extremely magnetic and buzzing. You know, you know like in a Brian Cox documentary, you definitely get kind of I'd lots like of that to buzzing throw a spoon noise. At one. Yeah, yeah. See how quickly it gets it. <laughs> what about Matt? It could be ridiculously energetic supernova. Could be, or it could be, it could be a blitzar. And so a blitzar oh. is like a bad boy uh, magnetar. That would, it's so big that it would become a black hole. But what it's doing, it's spinning. And as it's spinning, it's stopping that the, the centrifugal force is pushing the mass out so that it so doesn't it collapse. Eat it. Oh. So it doesn't, no, so it doesn't collapse into a black hole. So oh. it's so it's just about spinning fast enough so it doesn't collapse into a black hole. But as the energy gets dissipated, it suddenly collapses into a black hole because it's not spinning fast enough. God, and they that think that that, so that might be one of the reasons. I love that one. I, I hope it's that one because that's the coolest of all. Matt, ones, it could also be a dark matter induced collapse of pulsars. Have you ever thought about that? Yeah, that. That is a really cool you know one. What I, mean? I couldn't get my head around it, so I didn't put much more detail. It's about time, about time you started learning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or it could be dis explosive decay of axion mini clusters, a hypothetical elementary particle postulated by the Piquet-Quinn theory of 1977. That's one yeah, of my well, favourite theories. <laughs> so, yeah, it could be, yeah... In the early universe, may lead to the formation of gravitationally bound clumps of axions known as mini clusters. Um, and yeah, they, it, the fast radio burst could be matched in model which assumes explosive decay of axion mini clusters. Well, what about this one then? Cosmic strings. Oh, yes. As they interact with the plasma that permeated the early universe. That's a good one. Black hole explosion. FRBs could be with the uh, be the first detection of quantum gravity effects if that Ooh. was if that was the case if it was black hole explosions more like strong magnetic fields near a supermassive black hole that destabilize destabilizes the current sheets within a pulsar's magnetosphere releasing the trapped energy so what happens is as the pulsar's going round its magnetic field lines fall into the into the black hole, get snapped off, and then release this huge flare of, of radio pulse. Matt, this is like space poetry. Yeah, it is a You're bit. like the James Joyce of the <laughs> podcast world. So how amazing are FRBs? Oh, it's just ridiculous. Imagine like you've got an FRB. Yeah. You've got this FRB, and it keeps repeating. Yeah. But because it's coming from the same place... Some, some, like from the same part of a galaxy, you could imagine it's like a beam of light that's being that's being flashed across the 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 the, the universe. Essentially, okay. it's like massive, and it's a bit like an MRI scan. Yeah. You know, in MRI scans, you can come up with a kind of 3D cross section that's of your right. brain and stuff like that. You know, that thing where they sort of show it going I've in had like done. that. Yeah, exactly. So, but imagine you can actually use FRBs because of this property that they have to do cross-sectional analysis of the entire universe. What? So you can have this cross-section of the universe and come up with, I think it's called tomography. Wow. So, yeah, you can you could use them for that. How cool is that? That's genius. Yeah. I want a 3D scan of the universe, please. I, I totally want a 3D scan of the universe. Well, at least a section of it. <laughs> yeah, so, so, yeah, the FRBs that could be really useful as well as being mysterious well, and cool. Talking of mysterious and cool, mm -hmm. I don't think we've interviewed a David for a while. Have we got one coming up? <laughs> I think we've got... Another David. The most mysterious and cool of them all, Mr. David Baker, our resident genius. Our resident genius. Jamie, shall we go straight to David Baker's interview? 
Ecoute. Ecoute. The Interplanetary Podcast, putting the ace back into space. Hello, David. How are you? Hello, Matt. I'm perfectly fine, thank you, and I hope you are too. I am, yes, yes. Like you said earlier, I'm enjoying the weather. It's uh, yes, it's good. We did, didn't we? <laughs> <laughs> it's a good, it's a good time to be alive, particularly with so much going on in space. So, yeah, we haven't spoke for a, a while, but uh, mm. in that short period, it seems mm. a billion things have have happened. So, what 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 should we kick off with first? Well, I think I think. This last few weeks, there are a couple of things that bring us uh, down to interests more parochially and locally with regard to British space activities. But I guess people are really on the edge of their seat for the next instalment of the of the uh, almost fictional drama that concerns itself with uh, Trump's desire to to race back to the moon with with um, with unprecedented haste, and uh, he's, he's even eclipsing the schedule that was put by Kennedy to be on the moon by the end of the 60s. Now he's desiring us to be on the moon within five years from now. But uh, seriously, there are major issues with all that, and things have been tumbling out the cooking machine in the last few weeks, which really have uh, turned the original plans almost on their head. Bridenstine's head, head of NASA, must be dizzy with all of these demands and changes that have been firing at him from the White House and from the uh, also from the um, National Space Council, uh, chaired by Mike Pence, the Vice President. So, uh, so I guess those are the main central themes. So, should, should we talk about that to start with? Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, my mm. first question on that then would be: Yeah, mm. G- Jim Bridenstine, and and yeah. I think we're all in agreement. He's been a fantastic guy at the top of NASA yes. and how much does he know is he steps ahead or is he like the rest of us he's mm-hmm. reacting mm-hmm. to stuff coming mm-hmm. at him I think in terms of the uh, hurry up pace that was given by the National Research Council endorsing what was purportedly a directive from the White House to be on the moon by 2024 there was not a lot of consultation with NASA at all um, uh, much less than there was when Kennedy made his announcement, when nobody knew how to go to the moon, when he made this announcement in May 61, although there were several options on the table. So essentially what Trump has done is to give an existing program the hurry-up, but it seems landed NASA with a whole bunch of problems, and Congress didn't even um, uh, didn't even have the information it needed to be able to make sensible qualitative judgments, and we'll get into that in just a minute. But specifically on Bridenstine, no, I think big, big, I think we have to take it in context here. NASA is a very, very, very tiny government agency. Well, it's not even an agency; it's an administration. You know, we've talked before, but just to remind our listeners that there are, in terms of seniority, um, in the executive office of the government there is a department which is which is the top level of size and clout and budget for any american department of defense for instance Mm. um and then there are agencies central intelligence agency that's one notch down and then there are administrations which is the lowest level um of the three, which is an administration. It's National Aeronautics and Space Administration. And it's tiny. It's it's 0.4% of America's federal budget. Um, And so because that is the the lowest level of the various 
departments, we use department small d, um, of the U.S. government, really, they, they don't figure very large in bending the ear or the elbow or the arm of the president. The president, you know, that mantra that comes out of Hollywood, you know, I, I serve at the pleasure of the president, and that very much is NASA. And ever since Kennedy, it has been managed by Congress and micromanaged by the White House. And I think we sometimes forget, looking up our end of the telescope, we're, we're right here within the space environment. And I guess listeners are really um, very space aware and, and are very supportive of the space program um, and, and, and are very keenly interested. But it is a tiny, tiny fraction. So Bridenstine really gets a call to be told what to do, essentially, in terms of a plan. Then he has to put that plan together. And then he has to has to articulate it in a way which is comprehensible and sellable to Congress. Um, and although it may seem very different, the president has has less overall power over the U.S. government than the British Prime Minister has over policy in the U.K. And it might be said, well, therein lies the fault for the U.K. because. If the leader in the UK cannot get it right, the leader has to go. Whereas in America, if the leader cannot get it right in the States, Congress adjusts it and tells the leader, the president, what to do. And and if I may diverge slightly, it's a classic example with climate research. Trump sounding off all the time about he doesn't believe in human-induced climate change. Um, and he doesn't believe that the resources of the U.S. government should be committed taxpayers' money to investigating something that he highlights as being essentially a political ploy from the Chinese to get to, to spend money in a direction which will stop them spending money in a confrontational way with China. Um, that that has not moved the stance of the United States one one iota. Congress put all the money back that Trump wanted to take out for climate research. NASA has. It's business as usual. Although he took all the money, and, and we've talked about this before, each of the U.S. states has, is spending more now than they did before the Trump administration came to power on environmental issues. And it's interesting, a statistic, and I, I, I get such a, a, a tsunami of reports and, and, and um, conclusions and statistics in from, from, from all over the United States on all of these issues. And fascinating thing is that industry doesn't believe Trump. In the brown belt areas and among blue collar workers, they do not believe that Trump is right in saying, keep on doing what you do with regard to coal. Last year, 115 coal mines were closed in the United States, despite Trump saying he was going to bring coal mining jobs back to the United States. And, and this is what you have to be careful of. Because Trump is the president, he tends his words tend to be taken as though that is what is going to happen. And it's not. It's as though he's cantilevered out in in some wishless land that that's completely detached from reality. And uh, and I mean this in a very respectful sense for the office yep. of the president, despite what we mean. It's just the way it is. Congress is almost fifty fifty on the parties. And and it's not like in this country where where, where you have to have a cumulative uh, or you have to have a majority over the cumulative remainder. Um, in America, you're within a handful of votes either side. In the 100-seat House of Senators and the more than 600-seat House of Representatives. So so it's very, you know, bipartisan agreements are much more common than ever they ever could be 
in the House of Commons in the UK. So answering your question, I, I thought I had to qualify that. Yeah, because yeah. <laughs> it's not always easy to, to realise that. So Biden signs at the end of a telephone, and, and he's been very open. When Congress said, what's all this about? He said, I don't know. Give me time. I'll go back and work out the technical details. And that's what he has done. That's why it's only beginning now to come through very, very open statements. And he he is really one of the most open and, and free-speaking administrators we have ever had. But he needs, he, he is so clever with Congress. He knows how to respect them and how to upfront with them and be honest with them and say, we haven't worked out the technical details. I will get back to you by X, Y, and Z. And they're giving him space. But it's beginning to crumble. And, and so, essentially, this is not a NASA-driven goal to mm. get to the moon by 2024. All Trump is saying is, well, if essentially you're sitting on your hands and waiting around to do it till 2028, hey, guys, do it in 2024. And, and this shows a, a, a really a, a lack of synergy with other NASA programs. And because the budget is so small it has required the request of a colossal supplementary down payment to be approved by Congress for this. So maybe, if I answer the question there, maybe we should talk about that, about how Congress is looking at this. Well, no, I was just about to say, how, how, are, they, how are they looking at it? Well, there's um, a lot of puzzled expressions on the faces. And if you watch the congressional hearings, which are... Which, um, not exactly uh, award-winning TV shows. Um, <laughs> nevertheless, they are absolutely riveting if you're if, if you're steeped in the in the nuances of policy change about the space program. And it is it is Congress which is going to determine how this happens, because the last twenty years have been completely determined and dictated by Congress and not by the White House under the Obama administration. There will be no government-led human space flight operation. There will be no Orion, no space launch system. These were put back in deliberately by Congress, who refused to accept the request. And it is a request, just as Trump's edicts are actually requests. Congress refused to support the Obama view, completely overturned it, kept a rather grudging investment in commercial, which is now paying out in spades, um, and inserted... Uh, essentially to NASA, no, you will not retire the space station, but you will also have a massive launch vehicle to do multifarious tasks, and you will also have a government-led human space. So again, NASA simply is, is at the other end of a telephone, and, and this is not a conversation. This is a, a, a request to do A, B, or C. So we should not look to NASA. NASA is the whipping boy of the will of the president and the the deliberations and determinations of Congress. And Congress sends these bills back to the president and he has to sign them. He has only a limited, limited number of vetoes he can give. And it's outside the context of his executive orders. Executive orders are the only things the president can actually do without, without really asking Congress. And then he has to ask if it involves money. So really, this is part of the checks and balances which the founding fathers put into place in the late 18th century when they formed the out, out of the initial congresses. And of course, the initial congresses came before the Declaration of Independence. And that's why it's called a congress, because it's a continuation of the first congress, which sat them around when the, when, when the 13 
colonies were colonies of the British um, in order to establish that. So it's the people coming to deliberate, and that's why it's people-centric rather than power-centric. Mm. So Congress represents the will of the people. The president represents an ideological view of a party, and all the government departments who are answerable to the president get told what to do, and then funding requests go to Congress. So there are many checks and balances and layers. So it, just because Trump says this, it ain't going to happen, folks, necessarily. And so Congress is... So all eyes unblinking should be on Congress, not, not on the, the somewhat questionable logic of the president, no matter who he is. Congress is not looking well at this. NASA had to go back and say... Um, Bridenstein went before Congress and he said, we cannot do this without supplements to the budget. The budget is so low, we're so thinly spread across the toast that, you know, you've got to see the undulations in the crust in order to be able to understand how we're going to pay for this. And so he's asked for $1.6 which has been approved by the White House and the Office of Management and Budget, which is their treasury. And so he went to Congress to say, look, I need, and, and actually the worst and most terrifying words he uttered were two words, down payment. Because <laughs> yes. that 1.6 billion, as expressed by Bridenstine, very openly and honestly, is merely the down payment on what it will take to get humans on the moon within five years. And Congress has said, fine, it did not, it did not have the, the knee-jerk bile reaction to... Um, uh, NASA when it took Obama's um, plan for completely cancelling the Constellation program, which would have had us on the moon by now, um, had, had it out of the window. So Congress is on Bridenstine's side. They recognise this guy's open, upfront, honest, and and knows his way round the Capitol because he's been there and done it, and that's his great virtue. He knows how to speak to these committees, and it, that is crucial. And so he has said quite openly, look, guys, this is going to take a lot more money than you're allowing us. There's already a slight increase from Congress in the NASA budget compared to what the president asked for. Congress always fiddles around at the edges with the budget and brings programs in, like it completely restored all of the climate change research programs. Um, Trump didn't get his way at all on that. Bridenstine, to his credit, is probably his greatest credit is that he's a presidential appointee, and yet he's running counter to Trump on almost every policy that Trump wanted NASA to implement. And Trump's lying low and letting him have his head, because he knows this guy does get things done, and he wants NASA to do things that are essentially completely new and unspoken previously, like this great big moon hurry-up. So Congress essentially is not at all enamored with the fact that this is going to have to be paid for by the American taxpayer. And they're asking the big question, why are we doing this? What is the big hurry up? What is the reason for it? And nobody seems to be able to get an answer out of the White House as to the real enabling reason why Trump suddenly threw this at Pence and had it brought on the agenda of the meeting at the National Space Council. And the National Space Council... Um, formed of the great and the good, are in such positions that they don't want individually to spike the forward momentum that Trump has encouraged the overall space collegiate groups in America to feel that they are living in. He, the Space Council wants encouraging go-to messages from the White House, but it's, it's, I have to be careful 
I don't want to frame them as nodding dogs in the back of a car, but but essentially they are simply they are really just endorsing everything that comes before them, and maybe the buck should stop at the National Space Council with deliberation over grilling those those enabling agencies that are going to make this happen if it does happen um as to exactly why there is a need to put all this extra money in to do it quickly because there are lessons from apollo that this is really not the way to do a long-term program and the other thing that congress doesn't like is the fact that bridenstine has squared up fully and honestly in saying this is not going to be the moon landings we were planning this is going to be a quick rapid fire get to the moon fast and behind that at a slower pace is our original program from 2028 to begin to build a consistent presence on the moon but he said this dash is not going to be part of that so not only is industry being requested to put bids in for hardware that are essentially quick and dirty to coin a very british phrase but also have the consistent longevity to be relevant to a sustained, repeatable series of flights to the moon for a sustained presence. That NASA, And that makes sense, because we, we don't have the resources that we had in Apollo to simply put the timeline at number one. No. We have to do things. In the, and, and hello, Congress and Trump, there are other players in this. America cannot do this alone. It cannot, it cannot even afford the Iran spacecraft on its own. Europe is building half of that as we continue to find great pleasure in reminding the <laughs> listeners. Um, you know, that this is so, and, and the gateway, the gateway and Orion and the landers were all coming along supporting this, this gradual buildup across the board of hardware sets that could be applicable both to a sustained presence on the moon and preparing the kind of technological base that we need to go on for a consolidated approach to Mars. But on that Mars issue, Congress is being hit with very, very extensive and comprehensive, huge reports, which are advising Congress that any thought of America going to Mars in the 2030s is just sheer wishless thinking and cannot happen. Um, because right across the board, from scientific, engineering, academic, research, and political institutions and organizations, all focusing their conclusions after brainstorming this, is that there's no way, short of a massive threefold increase in the budget, could NASA see itself putting humans on, on, on Mars in the next 20 years. Yeah, and in the meantime, you've got all the PR departments of these commercial guys jumping up and down on a trampoline, seeing how high they can get their estimates on how short it's going to be before, how soon it's going to be before we get to Mars. We're going to be there in 15 years or so. And, and, none, of the, and none of the real, real core analysis and engineering evaluations display a confidence that we can be there certainly within the next 20 years, short of a massive crash program like Apollo. Yeah, well, here's, here's the big question then. For, for listening to that, it's, the, the question I've got is, obviously, with, we are going to see some more money pouring in, but with yeah. a rush for a 2024 landing, is yeah. essentially all that money going to get wasted because you're developing these 
quick and dirty systems when really you would have been better putting that money into the longer term systems that would make 2028 and and mm. possibly these more distant Mars missions. I mean, mm. the more I think about Mars, the more the more preposterous it comes purely on a human yeah. uh, on a human health level. But yeah. that, I mean, I guess yeah. that's on a, that's another story. But the yeah. but in terms of the money coming in, even if this extra money comes in, it's still quite yeah. disastrous, isn't it? Because you're because because you're you're spending mm. it on the wrong things. Well, well, the problem really is the fact that that there isn't time and there isn't resource that there aren't resources to be able to develop two hardware sets. There isn't even a block one, block two, as we had in Apollo. Um, what we get for the long term is actually what we're going to have to have for the 2024 landing, and the NASA mission set plan um, finally has been defined in the last week, um, and and perhaps we should just move to update listeners on that, although many of them may be very, very aware that the program for getting back to the moon is now called Artemis. Artemis, of course, is the sister of Apollo in Greek mythology, the twin sister of Apollo. And so just as in Apollo, we had the Saturn V's launched with an Apollo Saturn AS number, AS501, AS502, AS503. So the Space Launch System is EM1, EM2, EM3, or Exploration Mission. But the actual program is being called Artemis. So the moon missions are going to be called Artemis using EM1, EM2, EM3. So Artemis 1, using EM1, will essentially be an uncrewed mission around the moon in 2020. Now, this is your immediate hurdle. Because within the last six months, Bridenstine came to Congress giving them a wake-up call that, hey, guys, we're not actually going to be ready to fly the first space launch system rocket in 2020. We're going to have to take that to 2021. That forced NASA to look at the behest of Congress of using a conventional expendable rocket to get Orion flying around the moon and back. They looked at that found it was totally impossible and would take longer, would probably be 2023 or 2024 before they could actually achieve that. Because as we discussed, I think maybe on our previous talk, that um, that the enormous amount of adaptation of a spacecraft to a totally different launch vehicle is not just simply a matter of unscrewing the bolts on one and tightening the spacecraft with bolts on another. <laughs> it's a whole different launch environment that you have to re-engineer the spacecraft for. So now NASA is saying, after looking at, at, at several squeeze-me-quick methods for getting the initial evaluation of SLS and assembly ready for a launch in 2020, one of the things which tends to be a little worrying is that they had looked at scrapping the green test for SLS. Now, the green test is where you take the whole first stage, strap it in a Stennis Space Center test stand, as we did with the S1C first stage of Saturn V, and fire that for its full eight and a half minutes duration, which will be the time it takes to get into or the whole of its first stage operation. NASA had looked at cancelling the green test. Now, the Aerospace Safety Advisory Council looked at this very, very recently during May and pleaded with NASA, do not forego the green test. NASA was looking at not even firing all five RS-25s in the base of the Space Launch System before they actually launched it on the first flight. 
And so NASA has fallen back on the advice of the uh, of the uh, Safety Advisory Council to have a green test. But it's going to be going like the clappers to be able to get this launch vehicle flown, uncrewed around the moon for Artemis 1 mission with the first space launch system. But that's the plan. That's the plan. And then Artemis 2 would come two years later in 2022. And that will orbit the moon with a crew and be essentially EM2 that we've been talking about for for ages. But Artemis 3 on the third space launch system will be in 2024 as the actual human landing on the moon carrying the first woman and to a polar landing site. And you're going to go from at this point, a spacecraft which has been in development for 10 years, a launch vehicle which has been de- developed in 10 years, to within five years from now, on its very first flight, a spacecraft to put humans on the moon that isn't even designed yet. <laughs> and that worries me intensely. The fact that there's going to be no uncrewed test flights of, of the, the Artemis lander until it carries humans down to the surface. Yeah, it's absolutely crazy, isn't it, really? And, and that is, yeah. And, and so um, on the back of that, um, there's also the plan between 22 and 24 to have five launches from the commercial providers to build the gateway. So these are happening in parallel. So again, convoluted, long circuitous answer to your question there. But about this, business really of having to develop two parallel systems the operational deployment will be two parallel systems but the hardware is going to have to be the same and that's the worry and nasa is now out for bids and of course it's Boeing and lockheed martin who are front runners to build the artemis lunar lander um and of course lockheed martin have got their their own proposals as well as Boeing. others such as bezos and also the um I think SpaceX is off to one side on this because they've been going on completely the wrong track to be able to show um, credibility with regard to moon landers for humans. Bezos, and and I should add, really, that we, in the current issue of spaceflight, which is coming out the end of the first week in in June, probably out by the time listeners get this, um, we've unveiled the Bezos moon lander as his contender Technically, it could be developed, but it always worries me when we put put time before safety. And and I just I'm, I may be over conservative in in expecting us to to have interim uncrewed tests first. But I just think you need shakedown flights. You really, really do. And at no stage in any of human spaceflight operations, short of the shuttle, when we said we'd never do it again, and yet here we are doing it again did we launch the first vehicle uh, as a crewed vehicle and the shuttle was the first and, and we always said well that's going to be the last we did that because we nearly lost it on that first one there was about a 60% looking back at the engineering there's a 65% chance that we would have lost that flight and how we dodged all those bullets is is just you know yeah. mind-boggling so but here we go again because we, we're all pumped up with the excitement of wanting to be back on the moon and hey Trump says we can do it within five years so let's go for it well it, it's it's really sad and, and I have to say as well one of the things before we get off this topic of, of Artemis because um, obviously there are other things to talk about 
Um, with regard to Congress's reaction, I should have mentioned that, in fact, NASA went before Congress um, to get sanction for a new department uh, within NASA that would handle the moon landings. And the guy that was going to handle this, which only in, I think it was in April, Mark Serangelo had been named as special assistant to Jim Bridenstein, and he was to have headed up this new department. Congress has denied NASA the sanction to start this new department to con to, to actually look just at Artemis and the moon landings, or to, to command the operational evolution of it. And actually, Sue and Gallo has resigned from NASA. So not only is Congress giving... It's not quite the thumbs down, it's the thumbs horizontal, <laughs> a bit between up and down. They've said, we really cannot make the judgment on the 1.6 billion down payment needed right now this year until we've seen a technical plan. Bridenstine says he's promised to come back with that within weeks. They've said, no, you can't start this new department. It's got to be part of the overall strategic NASA long-range plan. And Sirangelo, who was really a powerhouse of genius, should should really have been there. He's gone completely now out of the picture. Um, so just as Artemis borrows its name from mythology, in the annals of history, Artemis as a space program may become a myth of the never happened projects. Well, because you know, <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm. <laughs> I reckon. I could put a considerable sum of money down as a gamble uh, that we won't have foots on the moon, won't have human feet on the moon before 2028. Yeah. And I reckon I'd be, I'd feel fairly confident that I'm not going to lose that money. I think, I, I think you'd be quits in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, that, but, I, yeah, it's, it's, for me, it's just the, the frightening, I've got an overall kind of picture that's developing in my head now that things like SLS even, it's come at a really poor period in history where um, we're, we're seeing some really exciting development in rocketry with reusable and things like that and this and the way that SpaceX and, and uh, Blue Origin are, are doing things and, and other commercial companies. And it seems yeah. that this moment in history, we've got a, a moon program that's just literally at the very, very worst point in that historical arc of development. And if we just wait a little bit longer, there might be this new period where something like that can be done a lot cheaper and more excitingly because it's different to how it was done the time before. I think that's very true, and uh, I think we need to borrow. Uh, well, well, it's an, it's another whole complex debate, but I'm preparing a somewhat personalised feature for the August issue of Spaceflight, which is not the one that's coming out in June. It's the one that's coming out in July, even though it's called the August issue. <laughs> I spent quite a lot of time in the former Soviet Union. Um, where I had the privilege of being able to discuss on business details, um, it was almost a government-to-government -government thing, with high officials in the Soviet Union about the direction of their space program. And being a lover of history and a great chronicler, when I say great in terms of verbosity, I don't mean great in terms of value, um, but in terms of the amount of words I love to, to ruminate over with regard to the history of space programs, um, I, I took that opportunity to talk at very great length as to why the Russians were so late in joining 
the race to the moon. And there were some very, very uh, interesting and very surprising interpretations of how they viewed the United States and why they always believed it was so it, it, it was their perfect role in history to be the sharp arrow but never to build roads that they always would dive for the future and then retract and come back and they the Russians said we were in it for the long haul America was just in it for cheap political advantage and it was very interesting to hear that. And and I I am reminded when you said those words that well, this is exactly what I was told about the, the about the whole approach in the American space program. Pearl Harbor moments, Sputnik One, Yuri Gagarin, China might be on the moon within ten years. Every single time, there's this catastrophic hurry up that leaves us with no legacy. And we've got to start all over again and do something completely different because we don't build in the longevity. I had hoped that we could internationally create a full road, a highway to the solar system rather than these stabbing forays that have no legacy and perpetuity. And that's what you're saying, isn't it? Yeah, well, someone needs to build the railroad and this isn't the railroad, yes. is it? This, no, it this isn't. Is, this is yet another... Yeah, foray on horses into into yeah. into into the yeah. wilderness. Yeah, it's, it's it isn't even a Lewis and Clark expedition because there's not going to be a lot of science come back from that first landing. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I mean that's the other thing. I mean, Jamie and I have been talking a lot about all these, you know, really exciting objects in the solar system like Titan right. and Triton and Celadus and all these yeah. places. You think, oh, yeah. it'd be just so much better to spend these sums of money on those yes. types of projects right now. Right now is not the right period in history for that kind of human exploration. We're just, we're just nowhere near that, that robustness where it's worthwhile. I think that's the key word, robustness. We're, we're still on, on a fragile rope ladder across a deep ravine, and we need to build a conduit across that ravine so that we can effectively move back and forth safely to that other side. And and I guess, really, it's certainly the eternal debate over the enormous amount of money that human spaceflight requires versus what you can do with so little. And the more you could do with, with, with just a little extra with regard to now we are becoming so competent with uncrewed operations and with robotic systems that, that it, 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 it's... It's begging for further investment, isn't it? Yeah. And and a much greater participation. Yeah, I'd I'd rather have a submarine on Titan than a than <laughs> than, than presently. Boots on feet, the moon. Yeah, boots on the moon. Yeah, I, I genuinely yeah, yeah. would right now. Yeah. So, but you know, Matt, the 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 the, the overall space program, we must not get seduced by the excitement and the drama of these massive big programs involving other worlds. There are things happening down here on Earth. We should we we should be considering, and, and some very, very serious problems and challenges. And, and may, we, may we talk about oh, no, some absolutely. of the yeah, yeah, yeah. contradictions from government to <laughs> coalface workers, if that's not an anachronistic yeah. word when talking about environments, um, with regard to what's happening in the 
United Kingdom with regard to investment in what this country does extremely well, which is the science of remote sensing, Earth observation, and plugging this old planet into diagnostic sensors orbiting the Earth in both low orbit and geosynchronous orbit. Uh, we, we, <clears throat> we as Spaceflight have undertaken a little bit of a campaign, and largely at the trigger of Stuart Eaves, Dr. Stuart Eaves, who was recruited to try to help save Scotland's only satellite receiving station, which in the wake of UK government um, protest, you know, sort of acclamations that they are a very green and eco-friendly government, that they're pulling out all the stops to try to get a better understanding of our environment, to try to, to, to protect the natural resources, to, to make the world a, a safer place for our future generation, all of this stuff completely countered by the fact that funding for the Dundee satellite receiving station in Scotland, Dundee, um, was pulled simply because the National Environmental Research Council does not have sufficient resources from the government to be able to keep it going. So here at the one side, we've got tremendous PR folks espousing the the ethical virtue of a pro-environmental government that's going to hang on to every single nuance of data extraction, closing satellite receiving stations that are used all around the world. And when this plea went out to Stuart, to Stuart Eves, I became aware of this and so made it a major issue in spaceflight. And that was, of course, the, the issue that came out at the beginning of May. And from that has grown a, a crowdfunding appeal for money. I mean, can you believe it? Yeah. The only station in Scotland that is pulling live satellite data of the Arctic and the northern latitudes down for users as far away as South Africa and Australia to understand the environment in the northern latitudes is, is being, you know, to keep that going requires a crowdfunding exercise. And, and there's a huge amount of, of work going on by some astonishing people there. Um, there's a guy called Gary McKnight, who, who is Gary Knight, who, who, who is a relation of Knight, the X-15 pilot, ex-Navy guy, who, who is an American guy. He lives here in the UK, and he has huge responsibility and work at the Dundee Satellite Receiving Station. He and about three or four others have this incredible 24-7 campaign to try to get funding from somewhere in order to keep this going. Now, why is this important? Because for almost 50 years, this place has been the depository and the archiving of pull-down data from satellites in both geostationary and low-Earth orbit, sun-synchronous orbits, in order to be able to provide the data that is pulled free-to-air by countries and users all around the world. The UK is a world leader in satellites for remote sensing and environmental studies. And this is one of the major areas, just as Germany majored essentially on human spaceflight with Space Lab and Columbus and France with Ariane. It was the UK who majored essentially almost by default of perfection because we were very good at it here in the UK, became global and ESA leaders in environmental research from satellites. It's not glamorous. Mm. It's not fire and brimstone of a rocket 
going up. It's not astronauts walking outside a European-built space module, but it is the core down-to-earth, literally, research work that has provided the fundamental data upon which we are increasingly coming to understand what we need to get to grips with in our environment. And NERC, there are very good people at NERC, and I really don't want to get into finger-pointing at any one particular organization. Dundee University, which has supported this for decades, and it was put together, incidentally, by a bunch of people in the 1970s, um, who were working on developing the kind of technologies among students and faculty members. Um, and, and it is the longest-running space facility in the UK. And this is a heritage which was essentially established by Sir Robert Watson Watt, who was the father of radar technology. And he was a graduate from Dundee, and they were very proud of it. But Dundee University had been so strapped for cash, and so the noose has been tightening around their fiscal neck to such an extent that they had to go to NERC to try to get funding. They're starved of funds from the government and cannot afford for it. We're talking about just a few hundred thousand pounds a year, which to you and I is a lot of money, but in, in the great scheme of things, this is nothing. And we should be angry and, re and not not really asking our MP what their position is on the environment, but why are they allowing this undramatic, up there in Scotland, facility to deny Scotland the only satellite receiving station it has because they're spending too much on the PR of what they'd like to convince us they're doing instead of putting our money where we want it to go, into proper environmental research and downloading of data. And this is an archive which includes millions of images. The, 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 the use of the facility is going up at, at huge amounts. The average over the last few years has been 5 million images downloaded a year. Last year, it was 7 million. It's been, there's feedback from universities in India where they use this data to improve their own weather forecasting. And that data supports 20,000 farmers in agricultural regions in India. South America uses the Dundee research data to help teach environmental issues. South Africa has written in to say, we need this data, please, please keep it going. Norway didn't even know it was closing. And the guys who are in, 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 in the front trenches of this campaign to try to save this have got the chief environmental scientist at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center tearing his hair out as to why this, why this is happening for this paltry amount of money. And at the same time, we, because all this glad-handing by governments and MPs and all the very, very committed energies of people, young people, very young people, who are very concerned at what the government is doing. We don't want words, we want deeds. And the deeds are there to be achieved. And, and it, it, you can tell I'm really very yeah. angry about this, Matt. Well, yeah. and, and, and I think, you know, it's not a joke. We really need to be serious about this. And please, if listeners are in any way motivated by this, part of the space program. This is a real go-to space program. All the rest is lovely and aspirational and inspirational and every other piration, but this is what we need, and we need to build it. And British science, British engineering, and British environmental research does not deserve this slap in the back. No, I mean, it, particularly at a time where it's quite funny. I'm, I'm currently in, an, in, a, in a heated email exchange with a 
a pretty eminent space scientist who who is right. a, who's, who's a global who's a anthropo- anthropological global warming denier i would say and oh, it, right and it's and it's really quite depressing and when you hear stories where 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 you can get data that the the more data you have that the 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 better picture you have of of what's going on and it and it's yeah. such it's such an important issue perhaps the most important issue that we could possibly be facing on earth yeah. and it's and and yeah to like you said for a few hundred thousand pounds it's a classic example yeah. i suppose where it's not generating money it's not a commercial success but you but those mm. sort of things will never mm. be commercial successes because mm. that's not that's not their job to be a commercial success mm. it's almost mm. like health and safety is doesn't earn you any money it's a pain mm-hmm. in the ass and in, in some mm-hmm. ways i suppose it's a, it's almost like a global health and safety uh, mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. situation because yeah mm-hmm. i mean yeah that does sound rather distressing i think i think as well countering the various dysfunctionality of the way government is planning and coordinating they're scared they're essentially like rabbits with unblinking eyes staring at the approaching inevitability of their doom I think government does not know what to do, and because of the dysfunctional... And I know you can make comparisons right across the board, but when you consider that this amount of money is the annual salary of three MEPs... Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> and and these, are, these are available for all this... As if they say, come off it, David, what are you talking about? In a full given year, even though many of those we've just elected may never serve a full year, MEPs get among the highest salaries of any politician in the world. They get £96,000 a year, plus £46,000 expenses, plus up to a quarter of a million each on their staff, for their staff or their offices, if it can be justified. So basic salary. And these MPs that we have appointed cannot, by virtue of the contractual arrangements of the EU, cannot get less than £45,000, even if they, even if, if the whole of Brexit was solved and there were no MEPs from this weekend. They would still have to get this minimum half, which is 45000 So in a given year, 96000 So you donate the salaries of three MEPs and you have preserved a satellite data receiving station, which is vital for those in the Northern Hemisphere, countries like Norway that that survive uh, in a lot of their environmental data extraction requirements from this station, who weren't even informed it was about to close. It's on a shoestring. I should say it, it is hanging by a thread right now. There is time to save it, but it is hanging by a thread. So when you compare what government is sleepwalking into with regard to its overall total dysfunctionality, in Westminster, and actually endorsing the employment in a foreign country of people who will get one-third each the amount of money that is needed to keep this going. Somebody needs to stand up, and not just to campaign against against apparently negative attitudes in government to the climate, but to point, this is something that can be done right now. And it's not being done. And it's as though they're turning away and just trouncing out the public relations spiel that they're given 
to ameliorate any opposition and try to take a middle road without living up to their constitutional responsibilities. This is constitutional. It's about people who manage local affairs. The local politicians in Dundee, I have to say, the Scottish media has been absolutely fantastic and have been on this case and, and are are aligning it with the mealy-mouthed outpourings of the government and comparing it with their eco-sensitive statements, with their lack of substance in not permitting funding to go through for things that are vital in the here and now to do these things. And, and that, as we, we have been unashamedly trying to drive the government to embarrassment over showing what they're not doing when a very, very simple stroke of the pen for a tiny amount of money can keep this alive and help to keep our flag up this tremendous flagpole of accomplishment for environmental research in this country. So I, I, I'm, I'm, I bet I'm right in saying that if you lose the facility, it costs a lot more money to then rebuild a facility like it. Oh, of course. Oh, of course. Yes. Yeah. And all I can say at the moment is that there are people out there in the commercial world who have the intelligent commitment and deep-hearted resolution to maybe play a hand in saving this, but it needs all our support. It's not over till it's over. It's hanging by a, a thin thread of a lifeline, but we need a lot of public drive. Please, from listeners, get angry about this. Call newspapers, badge your MP, tell them the facts. And I think one of the big, uh, if I may just, uh, am I allowed to to uh, to uh, uh, do direct <laughs> listeners to a, a, a website? A absolutely, you can the, do whatever you want. <laughs> look at an in, look at an independent assessment of this from www.geospatialworld.net. Geospatialworld.net. I'll, I'll stick that link in the in the show notes for sure. Yeah. Okay. And, and that, that gives the full story because everybody is seething over this. Wow. Yes, that's... That's, <laughs> that's, my, that's my anger moment of the day, man. No, no, but absolutely. I hope well, it's in a good cause. No, no, absolutely. <laughs> I, I read the story in, I read the story in, um, in Space Flight and, and it was, right. I, I kind of, I, I don't think I kind of read it as, 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 <laughs> as desperate as you've just put it there as well. So it's, it's good to have a, a reminder of that. And, and yeah. I'll certainly be, yeah, we'll, we'll certainly be pursuing that and we'll, we'll tweet about it and I'll write a few letters to, to a few people who, who might be able to help. So yeah. Great. That, yeah. Great. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. So what, what, what have we got left? What, what have we got left? I mean, there's so much going on, isn't there, David? It's, we, we haven't even talked about, the mishaps with um, with getting people up into low Earth orbit. I mean, uh, this, Crew this Dragon, is... <laughs> Crew Dragon, <laughs> Crew Dragon, and Starland. Yeah, they both suffered problems, and NASA is a little bit concerned. Um, it's going to push, I think, the first demonstrations at the very earliest to the end of the year because um, the impact on SpaceX has been quite severe. Um, and because it's a commercial organization and because NASA um, is only paying for the service and is not paying for the development of the vehicle, proprietary rights shroud SpaceX, um, and SpaceX really only like talking about the things that work. Um, they're not very good at explaining <laughs> failures, at least very often acknowledging them. Um, and, and perhaps they should take a leaf out of NASA's more open attitude 
toward failure by being accountable a little bit more. Slap on the wrist for them because they're great players. We need them. They're fantastic. They're doing seminal work. Uh, but they needn't be ashamed of things that go wrong because, hey, everybody's been there in the space program and we're all collectively behind SpaceX. So I don't want to say that, you know, they're... They're doing something something that they shouldn't, but but we don't know exactly what precisely is the implication. But I know NASA is very concerned and is putting a cautionary advisory that uh, there may be more seats required on Soyuz because they're getting a little worried. And, and Starliner also has suffered a failure, Boeing with its CST-100. That um, has gone a little bit uh, in the same direction. And uh, it's a learning curve. It's always two steps forward, one step back. It's when you get uh, one step forward and two steps back that you should be seriously worried. But uh, I think this is a case of of only time uh, being required to do the technical corrections and to get the validation flights and the qualification uh, up through there. And deep breath, we may see this with the with the big NASA project with Orion and with Space Launch System, which is why the National which is why the the Safety Advisory Council to NASA have have really stressed, guys, you need to go and test this rocket on the ground before you put on the pad and fire it into space because you could be deeply embarrassed. And if we lose an SLS, that could put the whole thing back by years. But certainly on Crew Dragon and on the Boeing venture, it's a case of watch this space for unfolding news, um, but they certainly pushed it back probably more than has been declared in the general media headlines of, of these things. And I think it's put up or shut up time with regard to the commercial space tourist areas as well. Jeff Bezos, in my view, is overtaking Branson um, in terms of the ability to get. I, I would not be surprised if, Brans, if, if Bezos was flying humans um, into space or just beyond the officially certificated line for going into space before Branson does. And that would be an embarrassment for Virgin. Yeah, it's 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 all to play for, isn't it? On that front, definitely. I, I mean, for me, the, the, this whole drag crew dragon uh, incident just points to ha- it, people should just look at that and realize just how difficult going to the moon would be because it's yeah. it's <laughs> it's taken so long to do something that really, on the face of it, should be reasonably easy to get to low Earth orbit. It's it's we've been doing it for. Yeah. For over fifty years, so it's yeah. <laughs> it's, it's yeah. It, yet yet they're they're really struggling, and it's and and yeah, with something like SLS and Orion, and like you said, all the lunar landers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, mm. it's, it's like mm. to think that there's not going mm. to be an incident similar to what we had with Crew Dragon, where it, you, you're yeah. testing and something happens where yeah. it's like crikey, we've got to go back to the drawing board. Mm. I think it's astonishing, isn't it? If I must just. It, yeah. If I may just pitch in there, is to say that it took, in the pre-big boom years of Apollo and the big budgets, even before Apollo um, was really funded as as a major, but well, even before Apollo uh, was anything more than a design on the shelf for an Earth-orbiting um, three-man vehicle for conducting science research around Earth, with eventually the the objective of flying people around the moon, perhaps in the seventies, before Apollo was anything more than that. It's astonishing to think that from the ground up, NASA was able to take a Mercury spacecraft and within three years do what these tourist guys have been trying to do for 10 years. Mercury made its ballistic hop just three years after Mm. essentially it was taken on 
bought by NASA, 58 to 61, when when Alan Shepard and later the same year Gus Grissom made those suborbital hops into space. And now the commercial world has been at, had been going at it for 10, 12, 14 years, and still they cannot get humans above yeah, well, it, well, it makes just a hop. Yeah, well, it makes you realise just how incredible the Yuri Gagarin flight was. <laughs> it's just... Yes, yes, it does. It does indeed. Yes, yes. Uh, but, uh, but, but, but it's extraordinary when you think that it took so little time on NASA's meagre budgets that it had when it began. But before this huge money came NASA's way and this yeah. doubling every year of its budget, um, you know, and, and, it, and it was that little Mercury flight of Alan Shepard, eagerly watched in the White House, in the President's Secretary's office by Kennedy, Jacqueline Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson, eagerly watching television to watch Alan Shepard's flight, because if that flight had not been a success, Kennedy would not have made the declaration to go to the moon. Yep. History it's quite is... a moving thing if you think about it. And here we are trying trying to do the same thing in twelve yeah. years on we still can't achieve it. No. All the all, all the curves are going in the wrong direction. Health and safety, risk averse lifestyles. We we just cannot submit people to the same kind of risk conditions that we could just fifty and fifty five years ago. Yeah, and, and I guess back then it was new, there was there was yes. the impetus against, you know, there was the space, yes. the space race, and 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 the Russians being yes. there, yes. And, and you think that there isn't there isn't something looming over us like that that no. would that would force our force, well, particularly the Americans, force the American hand into really going for it, like you were saying earlier on mm. about Congress sitting there saying, well, what's mm. the point? Mm. Would, mm. I wonder even if they thought that the Chinese were going to the to put. Chinese mm. boots on the moon. It's like, well, yeah, they're, they're still fifty years after the Americans have done yeah. it, so no, yeah. no, no yeah. real big deal there. Yeah. But yeah. It's, it's like, yeah, yeah. But I think that ties together what you just said. Everything that we've been uh, we've been pointing toward during this this chat is is that um, is that we 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 are very very good at rising to challenges, and history is full of those examples of where tremendous energy and effort accomplishes magnificent things but staying power is not the most go-to virtue of the human condition and it's been it's proving consistently difficult in human spaceflight to provide a sustained growth of capability and space station is 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 a fantastic and laudable uh, technological um, achievement and, and is beginning to return meaningful science. But essentially, it is it is not progressing the capabilities in human spaceflight. And as you said earlier, Matt, we have to really address that $64,000 question, which is arguably the most difficult we have to confront, because it may, the answer may uh, require us to limit our horizons that just as we cannot continue to exploit the Earth's resources in a constant growth, 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 neither can we continue to push further, 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 further without questioning whether it is the right thing to do at this time. Mm. Absolutely. Well, I guess, I guess on that note, just as we hit hitting the hour mark, David, I think we, we, we better wrap yes. up. <laughs> yes, of course. Yes, of course. Yeah. yeah. Really, but it's, it's been a, a, excellent talking to you again. And I should def, we'll definitely um, uh, 
we'll definitely pursue the Dundee uh, thing because because yeah it, I, I find stuff like that deeply depressing when when, yes. when science in, in particular gets put on the back burner it's like why do we need to know yes. this information it's like well information is is yes. everything is everything <laughs> it's just yes. Like, yes. you can't you can't put a price to 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 science you never know where the most That's obscure right. piece of science is going to go <laughs> that, that, that's as simple as that but and of course, th this isn't this is, even that obscure <laughs> and of course all of that is a very very direct constant uh, um, observation of a very very fast changing world and so th it isn't as though this is just a library of information it's a constantly evolving picture which we need to sustain and we need to keep our eyes fixed on on, on those issues regarding this this, this this very rapidly changing world so, so it's a consistent ongoing thing isn't it yeah yeah so we'll leave that with the spodcats to uh, to, to to join the okay. campaign. Thank you very Please, much. Yes. Thank you very much for for coming on again, David. And I'll speak to you next month, and we'll see we'll see how the space world has changed yet again. And hopefully, let's let's fingers crossed we have some good news about uh, Dundee. Yes, indeed. And thanks again. Always a pleasure, Matt. Thanks again. Bye -bye. Thanks very much. Cheers, Dave. Bye. The Interplanetary Podcast is. Alive! <laughs> so, what do you think about that, James? Oh, he's just always, Literally, always on it. I call him Doctor Glory. <laughs> <laughs> I could, I've learned a lot about. I, every time I speak, he, he knows a lot about the kind of political shenanigans there. But uh, I feel like I'm at a lecture, but by someone who I really like. Yeah, it's weird. I will be putting lots of different links to the to the saving that Scottish. Um, base station home station that uh, the cause that we're trying to save i will put the links in there for that uh, so yeah do 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 try and do that particularly if in the uk obviously uh and uh, jamie i've got one little space fact for you go on then hit me not just a space fact it's a space question for you go on what planet is closest to the earth well i feel like this is a trick so i'm going to say mercury <laughs> Why are you saying Mercury when it's when it's clearly Venus? Oh, I thought it was just a trick. I yeah, I thought well, you could try to fool it, me. It was a trick. It was a trick. So on average, the funny thing is, Mercury is the closest planet yes, to, to Earth. So on, on average, because it's going round the sun so fast, it obviously comes round and comes quite near to Earth. Whereas something like Venus, even though it's the nearest to Earth, if we were in the same if it was in the same part of the orbit as we were around the sun. Yeah. Often it's on the other side of the sun, so it's it's absolutely miles away. And when I say miles, I mean miles. Yeah, quite a few. Millions oh, that's of genius. miles. So I was right. Miles. Yes. So, yeah, Mer Mercury spends most of its time nearer to... Well, Mercury, out of all the planets has more of its time nearer Earth than any of the other planets. Well, it's bloody lucky because we are good looking. But we won't be good looking forever if we don't stop ruining this Earth. Please stop using so much plastic. Please take bags with you when you go shopping. I feel like I've done my bit, Matt. You have done your bit. So, yeah, cut down on your plastics, maybe. If you have a neighbour that's driving in the same direction as you, why not share a car ride? <laughs> Jamie, stop patronising our beautiful listeners. They're all into this kind of stuff. We're talking of beautiful listeners, Matt. If there's any new ones, where should they go to get more information about our podcast? I think they should go to www.interplanetary.org.uk. Will I find out about social media there? 
Uh, yes, you'll you'll have all the different. Will links. I be able to find out a link to buy a t-shirt or a mug with the Interplanetary oh, Podcast you logo? Absolutely, we'll be able to go straight to our and merch site. Most importantly, will I be able to go to the Patreon site where I could regularly contribute to make this show continue, and I get loads of benefits myself, making uh, humanity better. Uh, oh, absolutely, Jamie. We, we're going to go www.patreon forward slash interplanetary. And on that note, I'd like to bid you all a good weekend. I'd like to to ask you to look up. And just rejoice at the glory oh, of you, the solar system. I hope it's not a cloudy night for you tonight, Jamie. Now, why do you always have ja- to ruin my no, quotes? Ja- ja- but ja- Jamie, you're going to spend it on Exmoor. Yeah, and, I know. And it's like, that is a dark I brought my wide field of, sight, field of vision binoculars. I haven't been able to use them yet. Oh, yes. If, the, if it's clear sky tonight, you, that is going to be the best thing ever. I might be able to see Uranus from here, actually. Hey. Hey. Does anyone Boo. still find them Boo. jokes funny? I do. Bye, Spodcats. We love you very much, Spodcats. Bye, 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 bye. See you.